Welcome to a podcast of the Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm Mary Palm with Knox County Public Library, and we're so thrilled to be able to put on this series thanks to Patrick Hunt and his incredible expertise. Without further ado, Patrick Hunt. Thank you, Mary Palm. Thank you, everybody, for being here today. Um, I think most of you have been here, as Mary Palm mentioned. Um, and a couple of you, I think, have perfect attendance. So hopefully we'll see you, we'll see you next week as well. Um, in a moment, I'll explain that this title for this series is very intentional. Uh, and uh, you'll understand why if I haven't already explained that in some detail. Um, this is the third of uh, four, and the wrong one is highlighted. Uh, so apologies. Uh, today is May 18th, not the 25th. Um, moving a little bit too fast for my own good. Uh, so today we're going to talk about issues with AI uh, and couldn't possibly cover in 35 or 40 minutes with room for Q&A all of the issues with AI. Um, so I've chosen a few and you may have others that you want to address when we do get to Q&A. Next week we're going to talk about the future. Um, and that may be, we're going to have a lot of pop culture references uh, to explore. Uh, next week, so that should be a lot of fun. Um, and for some of you, it might be a little bit scary. Um, so a very light agenda today because we're really gonna use the bulk of the time to cover um, the issues that I've chosen to highlight. Um, and I'm gonna try to, uh, again, leave plenty of time for Q&A even though that has not been terribly successful the first two times. Um, I'll try to give a little bit more breathing room for that today. Um, the housekeeping, I'm gonna shortcut a little bit. I put it all on one slide instead of walking through four slides. I'm Patrick Hunt. I'm the chief evangelist for a company in Knoxville called Lirio. We are an AI company. We are creating novel uh, proprietary artificial intelligence to uh, personalize, hyper-personalize digital messaging, specifically to get people to take action for better health when they otherwise would not do so. Um, and I am not an AI scientist. Um, I am a communicator. One of, the one of my jobs is to, to translate complex technical topics to easily to, easy to understand uh, messages. And so that's partly why I'm here today. That's also why the title of the series is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the AI Galaxy. I am a hitchhiker, so I'm gonna try to share some of the things that I've learned uh, with you in the form of a guide, but it is not deep technical or scientific content that we're gonna cover today or next week. And if you've been here previously, you already know that that's the case. Um, I have used uh, AI technologies to develop uh, this series. Uh, and I just wanna be very transparent about that. I have used ChatGPT, BARD, and other generative AI tools to create ideas for outlines, for the presentation, for the topics to cover, um, and all sorts of other types of things. I've really not used it for imagery for this purpose, uh, primarily because it either costs too much money for this purpose, or I have to wait too long on a Discord server uh, to get it to work for me uh, because it's too busy um, and I don't have time for that. Um, so maybe in the future, we'll do something about generative imagery uh, using artificial intelligence. And then finally, as I mentioned, uh, we'll do Q&A at the end. Now, before I get into some of the issues, there have been a few topics that have bubbled up uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks and even since we last gathered here that I thought I would touch on briefly. Um, so the first of those is uh, a question came up last week. Could you just ask a, a, a GPT solution or a large language model to cite sources when asking for content? So I thought I would do that. Now, Literally hours before we gathered last week, Google announced a whole bunch of uh, updates uh, to AI tools in their suite of products and services, including BARD, um, and it's significantly better than it was. The same way ChatGPT went from 3.5 version to uh, version four and had significant improvements, BARD went from public release one to two and has had significant improvements. According to several analysts, BARD leapfrogged ChatGPT4. Um, I'm not certain that that's the case uh, in my own experimentation in the last week. 
Um, but I do find it's leaps and bounds better than it was previously. So BARD is Google's version of ChatGPT, uh, which is created by OpenAI. So I asked BARD, among other things, if it would create for me an executive briefing on generative AI citing credible sources. Very important phrase that I included in there. It refused. Every time that I tried that, I got something like this top response here. I'm unable to help you with that. I tried it in multiple ways. I entered it probably a half a dozen times. If I included the phrase citing credible sources, I got a version of this response, all right? So I thought I'd go back to my old pal ChatGPT using version four and enter the exact same prompts. And here's the response I got. Key developments in generative AI, one, two, and three, each of the three are sourced. Now, what I realized this morning in, before coming over here is that I would not ask it to provide me links to those sources. And so I'm gonna try that uh, when we're done here. But every one of those is sourced. Um, well, the other thing I didn't do was go look to see if they're real, right? We've talked about this previously. We'll talk about it today in issues that AI tends, these large language models have a tendency to hallucinate, specifically around citations, but even when you don't ask for credible sources, right? So I'm curious to find out if all of these are real, um, and if so, if it can provide me links to those sources, right? You'll remember that one of the primary ways I think about large language models like BARD and ChatGPT is as a research assistant. So if I can get sources, credible sources, and links to those sources, the power of that um, is off the charts, right? Because now I've really shortcut that process of going to Google, searching on some keywords, looking at results, linking out to those pages, coming back, um, deciding if they're credible, if they're relevant, if, if I'm gonna cite them in my work, paraphrasing what I've read, um, or rewriting analysis about what I've read. Now I've just gotten a response back in, in human language terms uh, with links to the sources that it used to create them. And so now I can focus maybe on editing that content and making it my own, um, adding some voice, some clarity, some uh, cleverness, if you will, uh, to that language. So I thought it was really interesting that Bard said no, GPT said yes, and I still have some work to do to validate the efficacy of uh, that response. Uh, efficacy, by the way, is our first set of issues today. Um, so I, I mentioned this before, uh, but literally hours before we gathered last week, Google had a massive announcement at what they call I.O., which is their annual sort of technology showcase conference. Um, and almost the entire presentation was about AI. So they're adding new AI cap capabilities to BARD. They've upgraded the large language model that powers BARD. If you haven't used it yet and you have a Gmail account, it's free. I recommend that you go check it out. It's just BARD, B-A-R-D.google.com. Um, and I think they do a terrific job of highlighting the use cases for new users before you sign up and sign in. Um, and this is just one example. They had a this was a rotating billboard of messages of how you could use BARD, um, and it was very captivating in my mind. And it ran, runs the gamut from planning trip itineraries to uh, recipes, uh, using certain ingredients that you have in your home, um, all sorts of things. Um, and it really did a terrific job of distilling down how to think about using a large language model in your everyday life. Um, so I, if you haven't signed up, go and just let that rotating billboard run and you'll see a very powerful uh, message about how to use these large language models. Um, now, um, it also has this um, disclaimer on it that it's sometimes not right, right? So these are still experimental. These are still very early stage technologies. You just have to keep that in mind uh, when you use them. But Google also, by the way, announced a ton of other AI enhancements in their suite of products like workspace, so uh, slides, uh, sheets, presentations, whatever they call all those things, Google Docs. So just like Microsoft added uh, OpenAI to uh, and G ChatGPT to a lot of their products, 
Google's doing the same thing, including in search, which by the way is potentially the biggest uh, is, uh, competitor to uh, chat, AI chat, like we're seeing here in these large language models. And so Google's got a really important uh, competitive response that they've got to come up with. And what they're doing now is really interesting is they're sort of marrying narrative responses with typical search results. So it's gonna be interesting to see how it shakes out. But it's moving really, really fast, right? It's changing really fast. Also last, or actually this week, uh, a couple days ago, Sam Altman, the uh, CEO of OpenAI, which is the owners of ChatGPT, DALL-E, and some other AI products, um, and ChatGPT is, is powering the explosion of new AI-based products that you're seeing on the market today, for the most part, because um, they have APIs that people can write a program, plug into ChatGPT, and use its capabilities inside of its app. Um, but he, the main takeaway from his uh, testimony in Congress uh, was, we want to be regulated. Um, now, how? That's gonna take a while to figure out. Um, but even Sam Altman, who uh, stands to gain or lose billions of dollars um, based on decisions that people in Congress make um, who don't generally know much about technology and AI, wants to be regulated. So I think that tells you uh, something. Art. I always wonder, you know, I, I feel a lot, as you, as you know, like with food stuff, and so I always wonder how much when companies stand up and say they want to be re regulated, is do they really want to, want to be regulated, or do they want the government to set regulations that will put barriers in place that make it harder for their competition to rise from a small place into where they are? Because a lot of times I always get the feeling like, like if somebody, if some major company that's breakthrough technology or you know um, stands up and says we want to be regulated, a lot of times that's really like, like we've got the keys here, we don't want anybody else to get them. You know, and that's kind of. A I, I think that's 100% accurate. I think that's one factor, probably among several, that drive the we want to be regulated comment. Uh, I know specifically that another one. Um, uh, happens to be, because I've been in the, in the technology business for a while, we would much rather be regulated by Congress than 50 states and the District of Columbia and the territories, because that's a lot harder to manage, right? And is it Montana yesterday uh, outlawed TikTok? Um, and now, uh, was it TikTok, I think? Yeah. So, so now the app stores have to try to figure out if a person is in Montana or not and prevent users in Montana from accessing TikTok on those app stores, but they don't have to do that for any other state. Now, maybe another state does that and they gotta figure out how to, figure, how to, how to do that as well, right? And it's, the onus is on the app store providers because it's only an app um, and the regulation is written in such a way as to uh, prevent the offering or provision of, an app, of the TikTok app to people in Montana. So that, that, that regulatory issue is huge, and that's why people actually, there is some truth to, we want Congress to regulate us. But I think yours is, a, is another of the reasons that people want that. Great point. Um, and if you go to Google News and just type in, you know, artificial intelligence, it is a cavalcade of news stories that are hitting every single day about AI. And these are just three random examples that I pulled. Um, there's no other, other value in that. It is every single day there is news about something about AI hitting. And so w when I tell you something today, it may be out of date tonight. Uh, so that, keep that in mind as, you're, as you go on this AI journey. Um, it is dynamic and it is rapidly changing and it is almost impossible to keep up with. Um, all right, we've all got issues. Hey, I've got some issues too. And so we're gonna talk about them today. Now, as I said before, there is no way, there's absolutely no way in a 45 minute talk that we could cover all the issues with artificial intelligence. In fact, we could do a four part series on each one of these issues that we're gonna talk about today. So we're only gonna skate along the top of the ice, right? That's all we're gonna to do today. That's all we're gonna have time for. In Q and A, however, if you wanna dig a little bit deeper, in it, then we can, in any particular issue, then we can do that. Now, I started by trying to find 
a construct for the issues, because all I was really finding was this random list of issues, stories about Sam Altman's appearance in Congress and what Congress people were worried about, um, uh, issues in news stories that appear in technology publications like the MIT Review, where they have deep technical expertise and a long history working with AI. Um, and I could not find a comfortable construct for all of these issues. So I, I created one and I am fully aware that it is probably not uh, that satisfying to uh, everyone here, um, but it's at least a working model to start with and to start talking from. So here's how I've broken down the issues we're gonna cover. I've got four categories. Again, not comprehensive, can't possibly be uh, in the length of this talk. Um, and I've got uh, three issues in each of these four categories. Um, and I'm not terribly happy uh, completely with the output, but we're gonna roll with it, right? So we're gonna cover these one at a time and again, only talk about them at the surface. The first we're gonna cover is e efficacy. Uh, so efficacy uh, is a term often used in, uh, most often used in a lot of research work, and AI is a heavy research-based field. Um, and it is, are we getting the results that we expected to get, basically? Um, and we're gonna talk about that around three things, accuracy and attribution, election interference, and dangerous and harmful content. There is some overlap in the 12 issues that we're gonna cover today. Um, so. Uh, dangerous and harmful content will come up later uh, in another category that I created. Not a 100% not overlap, but a little bit. So let's start with accuracy and attribution. So perhaps the, the greatest issue that, uh, or, or the first one that really popped up in the public sphere was students using, and we, we have some educators in the room, students using uh, uh, products like ChatGPT to do their homework to basically write essays, write rep book reports, uh, things of that nature. And there are tools that teachers and educators can use to try to determine if a paper was created by AI or not. But I will tell you that those tools are also not terribly effective. They're good, they're not great. I think the latest, and we may have talked about this two weeks ago, but the, the latest stat I saw was that the best ones are about 70% effective at detecting whether content was generated by AI or not, right? And again, that's also changing. So that stat from two weeks ago might be well out of date, right? That's how fast, rapidly all this stuff is changing. Um, but that is definitely a big concern. It's less of a concern that if Patrick Hunt uses it to write a blog post for the Lyrio.com website, because um, I'm gonna use it to generate some text for me to get me started to avoid or overcome writer's block and to give me some ideas, but I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna make it my own. There are, uh, uh, I don't remember where this is, but there are companies creating content farms using exclusively AI, because they can scale it rapidly, they can optimize it for SEO, so they can drive traffic and sell ads against it, against those eyeballs, right? So that's happening as well. I, I think I cover that a little bit later. Uh, but that is definitely a big issue and a big concern. Um, the next one is using uh, generative AI models uh, specifically for election interference. And the big concern, of course, is national elections and the next one coming up in 2024. We already know that there was a lot of misinformation, disinformation um, used in the last couple of campaigns and probably going back even more years in at sort of a lesser scale. Um, but now with the ability to use generative AI to create massive amounts of misinformation or disinformation content at scale um, very, very quickly, and the ability to socialize that via uh, platforms like Twitter, like Facebook, like Instagram and others, uh, to millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people almost instantly dramatically changes the game. Right? And we've already seen deep fake videos, for example, of Nancy Pelosi, splur uh, uh, not blurring, struggling for a word, um, her speech. Um, slurring. Thank you, slurring. I don't know why that word did not pop into my head. Um, you know, and it, it was a deep fake AI produced video um, it, that made her sound drunk on, on the floor of, this, uh, of the house. Um, so these things can, these things will continue to happen 
Um, and I'm not sure what the solution is, but this could be a massive issue in 2024, so keep your eyes open. Um, and I mentioned this already, content farms um, is being a big issue um, in creating all sorts of content out of thin air to propagate a particular idea, whether it's true or not, and then distribute that broadly uh, on a wide variety of websites or social networks or other platforms. All right, commerce. Um, we, are, we talked last week, I think, about this idea of copyright and licensing um, and from two perspectives. One is um, how are large language models created and do they compensate the content owners whose content is used to train in those models? Right, so that was the first issue. Um, skip ahead. This is the example I was talking about two weeks ago in our intro and overview of where um, Stability AI, the company that, uh, one of the companies that uses uh, stable diffusion to generate images, actually trained their model on images that are publicly available, but that have watermarks, which you then have to purchase a license to use without a watermark. And when it generated images, it did so with a watermark in it. It's blurred a little bit, but it is clearly discernible as the same watermark. And you can see how similar these two images are. So this is an active lawsuit um, against um, Stable Diffusion or Stability AI by Getty because they used those publicly available watermarked images to train their AI, right? I have no idea how this is gonna come out. I feel like it's an open and shut case and that Getty is gonna win this one. Um, but I don't know the law well enough to know for sure. I just wonder, like, is, because I know, I, I feel like not so much with images, I'm, I'm guessing it'll probably get there, <coughs> but things like with Spotify, and there's, you know, there's a lot of legal ranting around uh, music and, um, you know, they essentially use music to, use other people's music to train themselves, and then there's fake versions, like the Drake fake, everybody knows that, that's like, been out forever, and, you know. But the, uh, and now you can, you can go on, there's voice generators, you can go on for, like, you know, to download a, um, what's, what singer do you want, there's a menu of them, and, and you can download, you know, fakes of their voice singing what you want them to sing and then pull it right into your Ableton and start rolling on it. Yeah. The, uh, but I also wonder too, like specifically with the, with the generative part, not so much the, the voice because that's matching like a, a hard um, uh, wave, you know, yes. wave length. But with something that's, that's generative, that's coming up with creative content, because it's also, I mean, Google has a, a music generator, you know, but I also wonder like, how much, if, if that's training on all this other music, well, isn't that what every friggin' teenager in the world does? You know what I mean? Like, to learn know, how to like play every music. Every garage band starts out like sounding like somebody else and then finally finding their feet and moving on or not. Yeah. So you're starting to get to, and I had put these slides in the reverse order, but you're starting to get to the other issue of copyright that I wanted to bring up, which is, um, does the, the human being that uses a generative AI tool to create something new and unique have copyright to that new thing, right? Regardless of what's been used as inputs to train the model, right? And there has been a long-standing uh, rule with the US Copyright Office that copyrights only apply to human-created work, right? Uh, however, in March, the Copyright Office created a new initiative to really update their thinking um, on, um, on, on how to uh, think about AI-generated works uh, in, in the copyright sphere. So that's ongoing. That's happening now as we speak. As I mentioned, all this is, is evolving very rapidly. Um, there is one uh, pretty strong opinion, which I tend to agree with based on what I do know about copyright law, that so long as the, the, a human being that uses a tool like generative AI then changes and modifies it significantly enough to make it their own, 
then they should be awarded a copyright to that work. All right, that's one real school of thought. So um, if you just create output from generative AI and you don't touch it, you just reproduce it, then you would not necessarily have, whether you pay for it or not, which I think was the point that was brought up last week or the week before. Um, uh, so, so it has to be modified by a human being for that human being to claim copyright to that work. It would be harder to do that, I think, with generative imagery than it would be with generative text. Because today, the output to generative imagery is like a JPEG file, right? And so you have to be really good at Photoshop or some other tools, Procreate or whatnot, to be able to manipulate you know, a fixed image, not a vector image, not, not something meant to be editable, and transform it enough to, uh, to, to make it unique. Uh, from the AI. But then you can go to where's the proof, right, that this was generated. It's a little, it's so harder to determine if an image, especially more abstract works of art, were generated by a human versus a machine. Um, and so it might be much harder to enforce that than it would be with text as well. Um, so that's a real, I think imagery in particular around copyright is a really interesting space to see how that develops in this new Copyright Office initiative to try to get their arms around what's happening, right? Expect to see a lot of news, I think, on this uh, this year. Um, and then there's job disruption. Um, and let's be honest, AI will disrupt jobs, lots of them. Um, now, if it's like the printing press or the cotton gin or other new technologies that were introduced that initially displaced a lot of jobs, those technologies also enabled the creation of many new types of jobs, right? And as we saw from the intro presentation a couple of weeks ago, uh, Lynn Parker, at, Dr. Lynn Parker at the University of Tennessee, who heads up their AI initiatives, um, has reported already seeing jobs posted online for prompt engineers, these are the people who write good prompts using for generative AI tools, and the salaries for those jobs range from $200,000 to $350,000 a year. And those are open jobs on the market today. So if you're playing around with ChatGPT or BARD and you find that you're really good at crafting queries to those, you might go to Indeed and see what kind of prompt engineering jobs are out there because that's a really good salary um, for something that's brand new. That probably will come down over time, but right now that is a, an impressive, interesting area. Um, so I, I don't know where to, I, I can't predict the future, none of us can. I don't know where to fall on this. I do think there's something to um, new technologies creating, uh, disrupting, eliminating jobs in the short term, but enabling even more jobs in the long term and creating more value. Um, I think that's quite a possibility here, but I don't know that it's definitely the outcome. Um, and so job disruption is definitely an issue with, with AI. And uh, Art already mentioned this, um, but uh, this was a huge, um, phenomenon, it was, went very viral when someone created a unique Drake song that sounded like Drake, that was constructed as if it were written by Drake, that if you read the lyrics uh, or listened to the lyrics, you would think, yeah, that's consistent with what Drake produces, um, and it was 100% done by AI, specifically to prove the concept and make the world aware of the capability. Um, but you can imagine now if you can do that and flood uh, the internet with fake music from artists, what impact does that have um, on that artist's ability to earn a living, right? And how do we then create a system by which we can validate and verify the real artist's work? And there's a lot of people that will say, blockchain! Um, because it's a public ledger uh, with transparent transactions that occur, and that may be, very well end up being part of the solution. But we won't know that for a while either. So the verification of real artist work, or real creator, I'll use that broader term, 
work is going to be an important part of dealing with that type of issue of fake AI. All right, the next category, we're actually better on time than we have been the last few weeks, so hopefully we're going to have more time for Q&A and discussion. Um, unless Art's going to ask all the questions as we go. Um, Sorry. And this is probably the least favorite of my category titles, so bear with me. Um, I called it humanity, uh, but I get into the issues of uh, bias and discrimination, ethics and morality in this category. And these are huge uh, issues that, again, we cannot even begin to scratch the surface on these. Uh, a, a lot of what we've covered already is very practical. This gets very deep. This gets very um, uh, uh, complex. Um, even the notion of should we be creating these tools to begin with in the first place, right, um, is a big uh, mor morality issue. But um, bias is a huge issue. So, so most AI, or a lot of AI, is, is um, is created by using some form of model to train the agents to produce the desired outcome. So there's this set of data that you have. It's a known set of data. We talked about this example before, but cats and Google images and how they know it's a cat versus dog versus a lion versus something else. Um, it's because they had a set of data where some humid, human categorized pictures of cats and it learned how to recognize characteristics of cats so that now when it's pointed at a much larger data set that isn't already categorized by humans, it knows how to recognize cats. Right? That's why when you go to Google Images, most of the time, you get really good results. Right? But if the data that's used to train the models is biased, then who's to say that the AI itself won't be biased because it only knows what it knows, right? The data that's learned from. The classic example was Microsoft's earliest publicly released um, chatbot, I believe, I don't remember what they called it, um, was found to be racist. Um, it wasn't in the wild very long and of its own accord started making racist remarks. Um, and it was because the data that they had used to train that chatbot had racist content in it. Um, and so there, were there was no way for it to control for that. Um, and so they pulled it from the market pretty quickly. That was several years back. Um, but it was one of the earlier sort of, um, I might have been one of the earlier large language models released to the general public. Um, but Zach's here, he can probably correct me if I'm wrong on that. Do you want me to? Yeah. <laughs> So it's called Tay, um, and it, it, I think it had, it had like an online learning component, so it was actually learning from Twitter once it was released on Twitter, which was an early learning for the creators of AI to not do online learning. Yep. Um, so it, it undoubtedly had bias in its original training material, um, ChatGPT does, but uh, a bunch of people in 4chan decided they would get on Twitter and teach it to be racist. Ah. And so they tweeted thousands and thousands of times at it with various slurs and everything, and it was like, oh, this is this is what people do. This is what <laughs> the, the crowd wants me to do. So then it became, yeah, racist. Great. Thank you for that. Awesome. It's good to have friends in the audience. Um, the ethics in AI is a huge topic today. It is big for our company as well. Um, and one of, the, one of the issues that we deal with is why would we try to change someone's behavior, right? Um, and what if that's for commercial reasons, health behavior, because they're getting a mammogram and the health system makes money off of that mammogram, right? Um, and that's a, big, that's a big challenge, and our team is constantly wrestling with that. And the way that we've addressed that to date is that the messaging that we deliver to get someone to change their behavior uh, is all based on the clinical recommendations of our customers to get someone primarily to engage with the health systems. So go see their doctor, um, go see a care provider, do
do something that would engage with the health system. Um, now we're getting into other things like health and wellness, so eat better, uh, get exercise, those types of things. And so those ethical considerations will really come into play. Um, and so it's something we deal with every day um, at, at Lirio. And we're not the only ones. Uh, there's so many more um, concerns, especially around the profit motive, I think, uh, for these types of solutions. Um, and then from a morality perspective, this is where we start to get into next week's topic uh, of the future and this idea of artificial general intelligence or super intelligence and can we actually teach a machine to think and behave like a human being thinks and behaves, right? And that's the stuff that people are really scared about, right? Can we get to that full um, extent? And I think the reason for this, real, this tremendous uptick in interest around ChatGPT, BARD, and other large language models is because of its ability to generate text that is so eerily appears to be written by a human, right? And I think that really freaks people out because in their minds, if it can do that, then a robot can behave like a human. And oh, by the way, humans can kill. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons for this tremendous interest uh, at this moment in time uh, in AI is, is the ability of these large language models to um, so accurately represent what a human might have done. Um, and it, it, it really brings into a clear focus, sharp relief, if you will, um, the, whether or not we can actually create AI that replaces human capability. All right, finally, uh, global issues. Uh, again, this is just a, a short list of the many issues we could talk about, and we're only talking about uh, the very high level on each of them for the time that we have. Um, but from a global perspective, um, the large language models um, are today are primarily English-based, although that's changing dramatically. Um, there's privacy and surveillance issues, and then there's the idea, again, which we'll talk about more detail next week, of weaponization. Um, so, uh, what about non-English languages? Well, obviously, while English is a primary or secondary language for much of the world, um, there are many non-English speaking people on this planet. Right? And so, if something like a large language model is going to enable value creation and job creation and, and allow us to all work less and play more, um, then is it only going to be available for English speaking people? Uh, that hardly seems equitable and fair. Um, so the good news here is that many of the many companies, non-English speaking folks, and including teams within OpenAI, Microsoft, and Google, are already working to solve the problem. Um, and I think what you will likely see is um, some of the richest nations, not the richest populations, but richest nations, um, will um, be first movers in non-English speaking large language models. Um, so I'm thinking China, uh, especially with state-sponsored AI programs and initiatives already underway. I'm thinking Israel. Um, uh, I'm thinking um, Saudi Arabia, right? Um, th these are, and then probably a host of Western nations um, is, is what I would expect. France, Germany, and so on. Um, so this is, this is changing, again, rapidly. If, if you follow the news, I suspect we'll start to see products released that do the same things that ChatGPT and BARD do for the English language that do for other languages before the end of the year, right? These transformers, which is the T in GPT and large language models are now
kind of a known thing and they've unlocked a tremendous amount of capability um, from prior uh, approaches. Um, and so now there are people who can use these. And in fact, you could probably, I don't know this from a technical perspective, but you could probably put a layer on top of OpenAI's GPT capability uh, to do some sort of translation um, and get it done that way. So you're already using the English version and then doing a translation on top of it. Don't know if it would be as effective, uh, but it could, it's probably capable, uh, probably possible. I mentioned China. Um, and China's big on surveillance. Um, you might have heard about this, um, but they, um, I might call on Zach again because he spent three years in China. Um, but, uh, but they are very big on surveillance of their population um, with cameras and image recognition and voice recognition, very pervasive throughout public spaces uh, all across uh, China. Um, and uh, they are big into it. Um, the, the, the issues with Huawei in the United States and the reason it was banned is because the United States government believed that um, Huawei is connected by law to the Chinese Communist Party and that they were using their wireless technologies, you know, towers and repeaters and whatnot uh, to surveil um, in the countries outside of China. Um, and so that's why U.S. telecom companies can no longer use Huawei products in their uh, solutions. Um, so China is really big on surveillance and lots of people are concerned that uh, AI-based surveillance could become pervasive around the world, even in places like the United States. Right? We already have license plate readers, for example, for um, uh, toll roads, um, where you don't even have to buy one of those things that you put money into and stick it on your windshield, they'll just read your license plate and bill you, right? So those already exist. So they're recognizing the characters of text uh, and the state information that's on the back of your car, even though you drive through it 30 miles an hour, um, and then billing you for that toll. Um, parking lots do that. Parking lots do that, that's right. So, so it is happening. It is, a, it is definitely something to be concerned about. And you can see that we're only scratching the surface on all these issues and we're not even talking about all the issues. Imagine how, what Congress has to think about as they try to de define some regulation for how to deal with AI in the future, right? Um, and then uh, weaponization. Um, by the way, it's already happening, um, but there was a, there's a great story on NPR yesterday, I think, um, someone uh, who wrote, wrote a book, and, and I can't remember the name of it, I apologize, I'll try to follow up with a reference next week. Um, the, um, the, the, the anchor, the reporter for NPR responded by saying, wait a minute, do you mean that a tank with no human beings in it and no human being controlling it from afar could be trained to travel to ascertain a, uh, an enemy and fire on that enemy? And the response was yes, exactly. That is exactly what is capable. And imagine you do that and you don't have any control over that tank or that drone um, or that robot, uh, what, might, what could potentially happen, right? And again, pop culture references for next week. Uh, iRobot, if you haven't watched it, it's worth watching. It gets into the, gets into the robot scenario uh, of this worth taking a look at. All right, that's it. Let's open it up for Q&A. We've got 15 minutes left. Perfect. I'm going to go back here first, Art. Thank you. My question is somewhere between the humanity and the global cultural relativism and American, like when I use GPT, it's, it writes American yes. culture. Um, so is it the majority of the, the programming that's being done right now from the U.S., or does each place kind of, I know China has a purpose in it, but kind of the same sort of tools that we have available here, are they available in other countries with other cultural programming, I guess? So uh, I don't know the specific answer to that. I can tell you that I've seen uh, British English spelling of words in responses uh, in both BARD and ChatGPT. Um, mostly use uh, in words like behavioral. Um, 
And uh, so I know it's been trained on a data set that is larger than just American English, uh, or it would not know to spell the word that way. Um, but I don't know any specifics. Anyone else know more details on that answer? Mary I know Pum. that Melissa Gates was very concerned about, um, similarly, that the people developing AI are mostly men, and she was really actively recruiting women to be part of the development team because it has the same kind of impact of leaving out an entire culture if we're not, or I don't know if you call them women culture, but you know what I mean, uh, an entire thought process. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, Melinda Gates? Yeah. Yeah, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Yeah, um, I remember seeing something on TV where she was like, this is developing, it's developing fast, and it's developed by, you know, no women, or very few women are part of it, which is going to impact the outputs. And historically, very few people of color. Yeah. Right. Uh, in technology, um, so that would have a big impact as well. We need to be aware of who's developing it, who's involved in developing it for equity's sake. And That's right. Other yeah, it's a great point. Uh, I do know that one of the interesting things in the release of Bard 2.0 um, last week was they they claim that it is much more efficient and much more capable in a much smaller set of data. So I don't know what guardrails they've put into place about what, what sets of data they're using to train it, um, but their claim is that it, it can be better even on smaller data sets, which would suggest that you could put some guardrails around the training data that might uh, provide some impact uh, to equity and culture and so forth. Speaking of guardrails, yeah. uh, and Sam Hartman's question suggestion to Congress. <clears throat> what could Congress do? If they could do it, what could they do? And that's fine for America, but what about the rest of the world? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I have heard on multiple uh, news podcasts recently um, calls for global co coalitions around this. So we, we have global coalitions around things like bioweapons, for example, um, uh, around uh, militaries, um, you know, NATO alliance and so forth. They're 100% global, obviously. Um, but, but there are multinational coalitions that deal with a lot of deep and weighty issues. And so the hope would be that something around AI um, would start to bubble up to address that global issue. Um, I, I think the balancing act there will be to protect the value creation on behalf of the companies and wherever they are domiciled um, because it, that's a big part of it, right? The commercial capability I don't know, ChatGPT probably has millions of paying users even though they only launched in November or December of last year, right? Um, so that will be part of the balancing act. Um, one of the other challenges is that there are many different types of AI. We covered some of them a couple of weeks ago. Um, and how do you write regulations? How do you create laws? How do you enforce regulations for so many different types of technical and solutions? Target. And it's a moving target. It's rapidly evolving. It's evolving as fast as just about anything I think I've ever seen. Um, so honestly, I don't know what they're going to be able to do. I, I, it's going to take people a hell of a lot smarter than I am. Zach? So uh, the EU, I guess like the, I don't know if they're legislative bodies called, but they've passed. I think it's already passed, they've passed a bill, not that it's law, because I think it's really commission. Um, there's at least draft policy to see what something might look like. Uh, I personally think it's a pretty bad idea, but it's essentially just, you have to have, the models have to be licensed by a government body that checks it somehow, right? But how is that actually gonna be done? That's um, sort of the open question, and then, they built in a bunch of like extraterritorial control so that basically they try to regulate the world 
via the new integrator that might do business in EU. Um, but if there's already a ton of criticism that it's, it's essentially made to uh, allow Microsoft and Google to do what they want to do and destroy the open source scene and you know, destroy the startups. Um, and it has a carve out where it's like, if you're doing, if you're in clean energy or I forget what the other industry, none of these regulations apply to you at all. It's like, well, how's that? <laughs> uh, it's actually dangerous. It's dangerous even if you have good intentions. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. That's, thanks. That's very helpful. Um, I had not read the EU um, regulations yet, uh, so I appreciate that insight. Yes. You talked about the elections and, and false information and everything. With the election coming up and with in light of the um, fake Drake song and everything, how is the normal public going to be able to see? I mean, they can sensationalize anything in, in you know, just the smallest statement. How do people, how will people be able to, to figure out what they're seeing is really true or not? This could cause quite a plethora of problems. Oh, it already has, and it will I'm continue. Sure it, has, it, it will continue to, uh, and it will probably get worse before it gets better. That's why I was afraid. Yeah. Um, so I, it's unfortunate that I think the answer is that we have to appeal to our better selves. That's which I think is what I said a couple weeks ago. Um, we have to be willing participants in election information. Um, and being willing to go the extra mile to determine what's real and what's not real. If we, uh, as a society, choose to stay in our silos, regardless of our political viewpoints, um, then we are likely going to be highly susceptible to deep fakes and other types of misinformation. Um, so it's really about, um, it's the, trust but verify maybe is, a terrible term to use, but maybe the, the right one to use in this instance. Um, there will be a lot of initiatives to highlight misinformation uh, and disinformation. That's already started to happen. It gets flagged, you know, things on Twitter, which may not exist by the 2024 election if things keep going the way they're going. Um, but there are already flags on uh, tweets that uh, someone has identified, uh, and they're still doing it, um, identified as possible misinformation or possible inaccurate information. I don't remember exactly the, the term. I'm not on Twitter nearly as much as I used to be um, for lots of reasons. Um, and there will be more and more of that. Um, people will continue to invest in trying to identify, uh, uh, algorithmically identified deep fakes and other types of misinformation. Um, but that's a huge challenge, and I don't know that it'll be effective by the time we get to the 2024 election. I mean, we're already in the 2024 election, by the way. All right, you had your, I'll get to you next, Mary Pond. Uh, I, I guess it's kind of, a lot of it um, has sort of been covered with what we're talking about. I, I was just kind of curious, like, you, you mentioned like morals and ethics and you know getting that, getting those things into the system. My question is like, whose morals and whose ethics? Because the morals and ethics of a bunch of millionaires and billionaires may have absolutely nothing to do with mine. You know, I mean, that, that's, or, or, you know, billions of people around the world. <laughs> uh, so, so that would be my biggest question is, you know, but also I, know, I saw something the other day where a guy had written a program to learn the stock market that then um, went to, I think it was actually ChatGPT, like then, then like went in and, and entered the prompts into ChatGPT to get all the background information and then learn the, um, what, what he was looking for, background information for these companies that were, that were investable. And then investing off of that, it was then putting that information into his, um, in, into his uh, uh, stock platform, yeah, straight portfolio, like buying thing, you know, buying what should be what should be bought, 
um, shorting things that, he, that, that it thought should be shorted and you know, buying the long play on other things. Yeah. But he, uh, um, and, it, and it made money. Like, you know, he tested it for a month and it, made, it didn't make a huge amount of money, but it made money. Yeah. And it was you know, finding stocks that he would not necessarily find. Right? But if you could do, that's what I was thinking, like if you could do that, right, that's essentially a model for replication. And you could essentially, because you know, ChatGPT, I'm sure probably Bard, you know, most of them will also write programming language, you know, yes. so that you could essentially set up something that would that would replicate itself, um, even if you wanted to set up something that was you know putting out disinformation. Well, if the, then somebody's going to try and police that disinformation. So it, then you could essentially replicate the ability to put out that disinformation and send it to a bunch of different places. That's right. And and every time you stop one, there's still 20 more that were created an hour ago. At a scale, at a scale and speed that can't yeah. be dealt with. That's exactly yeah. right. That's that's the big worry is is those two things. To your first point, you can't legislate morality, so someone once said, uh, even though many people try. And I've actually seen multiple reports of uh, people using ChatGPT to um, outperform like the S&P um, or other indices um, actually by significant margins, like like 20 or 30 percent or more. This one um, apparently wasn't that smart. Yeah. Well, you may have only also been using a small amount of money to test the theory, right? Um, I've seen simulations of using ChatGPT to do stock picks, you know, simulated stock picks, and it significantly outperformed the yeah, market. Well, if you ask it yeah, uh, yeah, you got you got to know how to uh, engineer those prompts, right? Uh, which you can get paid a lot of money to know how to do. Um, so uh, I have seen many examples of that so far. So um, back to the question of kind of media literacy, I think it, I think it will create a kind of secondary market of teaching the public how to discern. And I'm, I've got a question for my school system folks over there. How much of a emphasis is there in the school you know, curriculum right now on being able to identify um, fake news and, you know, and just to discern what's real and what's not? Yeah. I mean, these kids are still, well, you still got, you know, 60 years of adults who've missed the train, yeah. but these kids are coming up. So it's a good question, uh, what is the emphasis in? And um, I think any question like that um, bears in mind remembering exactly how large public education is. Um, so in Knox County Schools, we've got 60,000 children. And um, anytime that we ask like, what is being done with them, um, it's important to remember how many thousands of adults that they interact with and how um, varied the experience and the skill level and the preferences of all those individuals might be. So um, it's really hard to tell with any veracity what might be happening. Um, but I think that um, there are a lot of very traditional skills um, that we hope um, are happening in classrooms that um, should really support um, that, uh, that type of judgment going forward. Um, and um, because, uh, you know, lots of things about checking our sources and um, like they have been around for long predate um, any of the technology and, um, and if it's a matter of um, keeping those cognitive processes in mind kind of at our forefront that um, there's probably in some ways that uh, the educational implications don't change. Um, there certainly are educational implications to be clear but um, I think some of that is kind of shored up but um, a lot of it kind of goes back to the appeal to our better selves and how much are we going to put on forefront. Um, with that, in terms of our own children and what we expect out of our community members, because we can't really say, oh no, the robots are coming for my jobs, what am I going to do if I can't code? And then also tell our children, that's boring, you don't have to worry about that. Um, because the, the fundamentals speed upward um, in such a way that it, it really puts an onus on us as every individual to kind of define how we're going to have those expectations about what we do with those core skills. Well, and I was thinking, you were talking about that. Um, also, in thinking about, you know, we, we see in education, we see framework shifts and there are things that we embrace, but, but one that has been, at least as long as I've been in education, which is the 25 years, we still go back to Bloom's taxonomy, right? And, and what we have there is evaluation, like embedded within that. And I think every time we teach those evaluative skills, those problem solving skills, those critical thinking skills, all of that leads towards this. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Um, so we're at time. Um, 
you can see uh, that we're really in an hour only able to touch on what some of the issues are, not all of the issues, and not go very deep into any of them. Um, again, we could do a series, uh, four parts, 12 parts, 52 parts uh, on each one of these issues and still probably not fully explore each one of them. Um, but I wanted to hopefully give you a broad overview of some of the most important issues that people are trying to address today, um, whether successfully or not, um, and hopefully it's been helpful. Next week, same time, same place, same channel, um, uh, which is Knoxville Community Media, by the way. Um, these talks are being recorded for that, so they'll be streamed after the fact on demand, um, so you can check them out or share them with friends and family. Um, next week, we're gonna talk about the future. Uh, and as I mentioned before, we're gonna do a lot of pop culture referencing uh, for that, because uh, I think that'll be a good framework for talking about possibilities and opportunities. So if you haven't watched iRobot, Her, uh, uh, there's several others I can recommend and we're gonna be talking about next week, but those are worth your, worth your watch, worth your time. So thank you. See you next week. <laughs>